Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and our text will be verses 20 to 28 of God's holy word. Of course, this is Easter, this is Resurrection Sunday. We are often focused, of course, on the resurrection of our Lord, of him rising again on the third day, just as he had said, in accordance with the scriptures. We place a lot of emphasis, of course, on the resurrection at this time of year, and rightly so. There are a number of things that go on, of course, uh, depicting this very reality. Some churches do plays, some do productions reenactments of the life of Christ, of his death, of his resurrection. And it is important, of course, because as Paul will say earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection of Christ, then there is no resurrection for anyone else. And we are people to be most pitied. The resurrection of our Lord, as we had went over in the Gospel of John, was obviously a very significant event in the sense that Christ being raised from the dead, he was vindicated to be exactly who he claimed to be, that he was indeed the Son of God, and he demonstrated that by the power that he had in rising again. And while this is central to the Christian faith without question, we place so much emphasis on the resurrection itself as if it was just an isolated event with limited repercussions. But that's not true. There are uh, co uh, cosmic scale repercussions because of the resurrection of our Lord. It was indeed a cosmic event that set in motion a number of things on a grand scale. So while we look at it as an isolated event, which is central to the Christian faith, absolutely, what he had, do what he had done and what he had accomplished set in motion so many other things that perhaps we don't think of. And so today... We are looking at that very thing, looking at the results, the benefits of what Christ had accomplished in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection that we receive through faith. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We are looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning of verse 20, reading to verse 28. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he has accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. 
Thank you for the great hope that we receive by the truths that are contained here in this scripture. And we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would move mightily within our hearts, giving us an open mind and open heart, Lord, to receive your word, recognizing, Father, that that Christ is speaking to his people through the Holy Spirit as the word is read and delivered. And we pray, indeed, that you would bless the preaching of your word and that Christ would do a mighty work within us today to give us such a hope and a longing for the time in which he will return. Father, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. First Corinthians 15 is known as the resurrection chapter, as we know. There are some very profound things that the Apostle Paul says as he begins into this chapter after speaking of the gifts of the church. He turns his attention then to the gospel that was preached to them in order to set right some misconceptions that the Corinthians were having. Often when you're reading the epistles of Paul, and especially in First Corinthians, when you see the state of the church in the beginning, and you see him go from one subject to another subject to another, it is implied then that these are perhaps questions that they had written to him about. And so now, after addressing the abuse of spiritual gifts in the church, now the apostle turns his attention to the gospel itself, what is central to the gospel, which is the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of the dead. And when he actually, just to give you a footnote there, in verse 3, uh, when he begins this early church creed, it, it is even believed by uh, critical scholars that this particular creed uh, was, was brought about within probably, Paul probably received this within five years of Christ's uh, death, resurrection, and ascension. So it is one of the earliest creeds that is contained in Scripture and is also a demonstration that uh, there were no embellishments when it came to the person of Christ or his resurrection in the years thereafter. He speaks of the gospel itself, of what is the content of the gospel. In verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I but the grace of God with me. Then he begins to address the resurrection. He speaks to the people, how is it that some of you say there is no resurrection? And so the content of what he is bringing about in the verses that we are going over today is in view of this. You all say that there is no resurrection. You may acknowledge that Christ was resurrected, but you do not acknowledge that there's a resurrection of the dead for those who are in Christ. How is it that you can say this? If there is no resurrection of the dead, Christ is not raised because the two are intertwined together. And if, there, if Christ is not raised, you're still in your sins, you are to be most pitied. 
And so as he is addressing uh, this very troubling uh, belief that was in the Corinthian church, again, because the resurrection is central to the Christian faith, you cannot believe that Christ somehow rose spiritually or that Christ uh, rises within our own minds. We resurrect him in our own minds or some kind of liberal view like that and believe yourself to be a Christian. The physical resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection of Christ is central to the Christian faith. I had shared with you before that there was a uh, gentleman who was being, um, he was being examined by one of the sessions. It was in a Presbyterian church. It was in a more mainline liberal denomination of the Presbyterian church. And it got to this portion in which they asked him, do you believe in the resurrection of Christ? And he says, no, I don't. They're like, what do you mean you don't believe in that? He's like, I don't believe in that. And so there was a break in between the examination. They took him off to the side. A few of them did and said, listen, you most certainly do believe in the resurrection of Christ. He says, well, I really don't. He said, but listen, whenever you think of Christ and you reflect upon Christ, you're resurrecting him in your mind, right? So you believe in the resurrection. So when he went back in, they asked him the same question, do you believe in the resurrection? And he answered, yes, he did. That is a gross uh, aberration of what the truth of the gospel is concerning the bodily resurrection of our Lord. It is central to the Christian faith. And it has certain repercussions, benefits to those who are in Christ. And that's where we begin in verse 20. Addressing, now remember, as we're going through this, all of this is tied to the resurrection, to the truth and the reality of the resurrection. Because one of the first consequences of Christ being raised from the dead is that those who are in him are raised from the dead. He says in verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. This is, this is a reality. This is a certainty. And you, you know that uh, by just uh, the, the words that he uses there. But now, it's in the Greek, nunai day. And, and when Paul uses that, he gives profound truths of the gospel thereafter. It's emphatic. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Using some Old Testament imagery there of the first fruits of the Feast of First Fruits, the offering of the first fruits. It was the first installment of the great harvest to come. One writer says the Israelites were required to bring an offering from the first part of the crop. The crop was then taken was a token of the whole harvest that belonged in its entirety to God. Speaking of the first fruits, he is saying Christ is the first fruits. He is the, the first of its kind. The resurrection of Christ is the first of its kind, is the emphasis, and there will be another thereafter. That is the certainty of it, using that Old Testament imagery of the early harvest and then the latter harvest. Believers had questioned, again, the resurrection of the dead. But the emphasis here is, is that Christ is raised. He is raised bodily. This is the first of its kind in the way that Christ was raised from the dead. Christ did not raise from the dead and go back to his previous existence. Some say that maybe Christ was raised and he was raised spiritually, and that's not at all what the scriptures teach us at all. He was raised in a human body. Remember this. When you think of the incarnation of Christ and the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who, who takes human flesh, he adds humanity to his being. 
so that in his divinity is perfectly united to his humanity. They're not confused. They're not intermingled. They were both retain their specific properties, yet making up the one man, Jesus Christ. He is the God-man. He adds humanity to his being, and he is forever the God-man. And when he rose, he didn't rose, he didn't rise again spiritually to go back to his pre-existence as he was before. He rises as the God-man in a human physical body, which is a foretaste of what everyone else is going to experience who are in him. And that's the point. The very fact that he was raised from the dead in a glorified human body is pointing toward the reality that those who are in him will also rise again in the same physical, glorified type of a body. Now, granted, there will always be a difference between the creator and the created. We will never be like Christ in the fullest sense. You will never have the knowledge of God ever because he's God and we're not. But we have all eternity uh, to learn and to continue to learn of who he is and to stand in awe of his majesty and his glory. But he's the first fruits of those who are asleep. That's where the connection is. If Christ rose bodily, a physical glorified body, he is the first fruits of those who are asleep, referencing the believers who have already died in him. There's the connection. He rose from the dead. He's the first of that kind of a resurrection for those who are already fallen asleep. And John, when we, when we think about what kind of a body we're going to be raised in and all of that, we really don't know. The only thing that we can go back to is what John does. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And when it comes to the resurrection body that we will receive, that's really all we can really know. There is indeed a mystery that is there. But what we can understand is that when Christ rose from the dead, that he had a physical body. He ate with the disciples. Uh, he, he, had, he cooked some fish and stuff, and he ate with the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So there are still the human properties that are there, though within an incorruptible, glorified state. His resurrection ensures the resurrection of those who are in him. And then you have the comparison that is given to, to even give further uh, hope to the believers, the surety of a believer's resurrection, and the comparisons that he makes here in verses 21 and 22. Now, we had talked a few Wednesdays ago about parallelisms within, human, or within uh, Hebrew poetry, and there's some parallelisms here. He says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Again, emphasizing the humanity of Christ in comparison with Adam. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now, Paul has already expounded in a number of other places the connection of, of Adam and his posterity, the results of Adam's sin against all humanity. In Romans chapter 5, for example, verse 12, God's word says, Therefore, just as, one, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We recognize the connection of all humanity to Adam. Adam sinned. His sin is imputed to all his posterity so that as you are born, you are born guilty automatically. 
You are a sinner at your birth. All mankind was universally affected by Adam's sin, and physical death comes as a result of it. That goes across the board to everyone. We can see the connection there. We get it. And so in using that kind of a comparison with that kind of a connection between Adam, who represents the old order, and all mankind thereafter who are connected to him, so he's making the comparison and giving that surety of those who are now connected to Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And that is qualified by his next statement, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. The all who are made alive are those who are Christ's. And the connection is so strong in the fact that believers being united to Christ just as all mankind is connected to Adam. That's the comparison. All mankind receives death. Now all those who are in Christ receive life. And Christ is the first fruits of all who receive that life, that kind of life, that physical life. We don't go into some floaty place and some ethereal existence sitting on a cloud or whatever. I can't play the harp anyway. But we don't go to that kind of an existence. There is something far greater that God has prepared for his people, which we'll also get into as we work our way through the passage. <clears throat> but the humanity of Christ is emphasized in connection to Adam's humanity. He rose again in a glorified human body. And this is, again, to emphasize the unity of of the believers to their head, their leader, Christ, just as all mankind is connected to the first Adam. One writer said, Adam leads the old order, and all are bound to him and share his banishment from Eden, his alienation, and his fate of death, so that death becomes the common lot of his posterity. And then in comparison, for those that are in Christ, their lot is to receive the new life. That he has given and his resurrection is the surety of that reality so while we look at the resurrection of our lord and we we stand in all of it and we should it is not an isolated event with little repercussions because of his resurrection you are guaranteed your resurrection in him that's one of the first things that he brings out here because he rose again all who are in him will raise again, will rise again also. And this is brought about by faith in the Son of God. Having faith in the Lord Jesus is what brings to you the righteousness of Christ, which brings you into favor with the Father. And that's your surety of the life that will come. But look at this, though. Not only does it have... Uh, consequences or repercussions for us as individuals but on an even grander scale in verse 23 but each in his own order christ the first fruits after that those who are christ at his coming there's an order to the resurrection that kind of language that's being used refers to uh, that noun and and uh, that is translated there it refers to something that is placed in proper order it's used in a military context for soldiers, for the order or rank of each individual. Christ is the leader, and the rest 
follow after him. So the resurrection has an order to it. He's not, he's not trying to pinpoint when the resurrection is going to happen or why the resurrection hasn't, hasn't occurred yet. Uh, for even believers in his day as he is writing to them, he is simply making the statement of fact, Christ is raised from the dead, he's the first fruits at the appointed time, you could say, everyone else will be resurrected as well. Because something has to happen in between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of all who are in him. He says that at the coming of Christ, when that resurrection occurs, this is when the end comes. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now, maybe we don't consider this particular consequence of Christ's resurrection. Because Christ is raised from the dead. Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling and reigning as the, the cosmic sovereign king, clothed in all his majesty and glory. And he is ruling and reigning even now. We are, we're not waiting for Christ to become king. He is king. And he is sitting on his cosmic throne, clothed in all his regal majesty. The passage that was read before the last song of Revelation 5, that's exactly what Revelation 5 is, is describing for us, of the coronation of our Lord Jesus. When you wonder what it is that happened after the resurrection of our Lord when he ascended into heaven, well, Daniel 7 gives you that picture, and so does Revelation 5. John sees the throne room. He sees the one sitting on the throne who Daniel refers to as the Ancient of Days. No one is worthy to take the scroll. And then all of a sudden, John begins weeping, and the angel says, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has overcome, and he is worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals. And then when John hears this announcement of the lion of the tribe of Judah, he turns to see. And what does he see? A lamb, as it had been slain. This is giving us that, that picture into the throne room of, of heaven of what happened after the ascension of our Lord. Remember when Jesus was praying in the garden in John 17, he prays to the Father, glorify me with the glory which I shared with you before the world was, because he had laid aside his divine prerogatives in the incarnation. And then you see in Revelation 5, as he appears in heaven, and he comes up to the one who sits on the throne, and he takes the scroll, begins to break its seals. What does he receive? Glory and power and dominion and that all peoples, nations, and tongues should serve him. This is his coronation where he takes his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. To sit on his cosmic throne and to rule and to reign. He is ruling and reigning now. And it is in connection with his resurrection. And what is he doing? He is putting all his enemies under his feet. This passage is alluding to Psalm 110. which we know by heart, but let's read it. Psalm 110, beginning of verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. Now notice in your Bibles, you have the first word there, Lord. It's in all capitals. The translators are giving us the indication that that is the sacred name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh says to my Lord, that's a capital L, little O, little R, little D. 
The translators are giving us the indication that this is the highest exalted title of God in the Old Testament, which is Adonai. Yahweh says to my Adonai, the sovereign, the master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. That's what Paul is alluding to in 1 Corinthians 15, about the cosmic reign of Christ in heaven. He is ruling and he is reigning. He is putting all rule and authority and power under him. They're becoming a footstool for his feet. Now, maybe this doesn't seem like it. This reality perhaps hasn't quite become real to us because we see so many things in our own day. We see so many things in the nation and in other parts of the world that are just so wicked and vile. And we wonder, how is it, Lord, that this can be your will? Or, Lord, why aren't you doing something? We ask those questions also. I was talking to someone not too long ago, and they were talking about an establishment that was coming to Gate City. And, and their, their view of this was, Satan's getting a foothold. Satan's getting a foothold into this, into this city, and then it's going to spread and all of this. Beloved, we have to understand something. Just as MacArthur had says, there is nothing in the kingdom of darkness that will ever have an effect on the kingdom of Christ. Ever. And when you think about the kingdom of Christ, it is the grandest of all kingdoms. It's like, well, how can that be? Because when you think of kingdoms, we think of nations. We think of America. We think of Germany. We think of whatever. But what we don't think of is the full reign of Christ over his entire people, which spans the globe. The people of God are all over the globe. And one great description of the growing of the kingdom of our Lord is in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, this is when Daniel is interpreting the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. He sees the statue. He sees a rock that is cut out of the mountain, and it's cast at the statue, and it, it breaks the statue in pieces. And the interpretation of what that rock represents, he says in verses 44 and 45, he says, in the days of those kings, the kings that he just referred to, of Babylon, of Medo-Persia, of Greece, and of Rome. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy." Now, he says earlier, speaking of that very kingdom, that it starts out as a small rock and it grows into a great mountain and encompasses all the earth. Or as Jesus talks about his kingdom and he says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of the garden. But then when it's full grown, it's the largest tree in the garden. That's, that's indicating the, the kingdom of Christ and, and, and how the kingdom of Christ is growing. And Christ's kingdom is all over the world. Because believers are all over the world. And how is it that we live? Well, we live by, as citizens of the kingdom, we live by the law of God. We are citizens of Christ's great kingdom. And again, when you think about what does the scripture say in conjunction with his resurrection, 
when it comes to his authority over all. Think of what was accomplished because of his resurrection that is described elsewhere. Colossians 2 says he made an open spectacle of his enemies, all of his enemies, by rising from the dead. Hebrews 2, the writer of Hebrews says that Christ has rendered Satan powerless, him who had the power over of death. Christ rendered him powerless, not yet to come. He did it already, and he did it through his resurrection. In 1 John chapter 3, John says, For this reason did the Son of God come into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, All authority in heaven and earth is mine. That's what he says. Ephesians 1, Paul says that he is far above all rule and authority. He is seated on his cosmic throne. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that he is making his enemies a footstool for his feet. Who's in charge? It's obviously Christ. Does Satan have a foothold? No, he does not. Why? Because Satan is under the sovereign control of God. They're not on equal standing here. There is no such thing as the created being on the same level as the creator. I shared with you before, I can't stand that picture that goes on Facebook at times where it has Jesus on one side and it has Satan on the other side and they're locked arms as if they're getting ready to start arm wrestling. How dumb. That's ridiculous. Why? Because Colossians chapter 1 says that Christ is the one who created him. And there will always be the difference between the creation and the creator. So what is Satan? He's like a lion roaming about seeking someone to devour. As one theologian had put it, Satan is like a dog on a leash. He can only go so far. He can bark. And if you get too close, he can bite you. That's it. Christ has all rule and authority over every evil, wicked power that is out there. So that when we see the things that are going on in the nation, we have to remember, Christ is not in heaven pacing back and forth going, I wonder what I'm going to do now. Because Psalm 2 says, when he sees the nations enraged and the peoples devising a vain thing, it says the Lord laughs at them. He scoffs at them. So how do we, what, what do we make of the things that happen in our day? Well, we remember that Christ, the sovereign king, is ruling and that everything is going according to plan. And if that seems so far-fetched, well, just think of, think of the crucifixion. Think of everything that happened there. Think of how devastated that, the, that the, the disciples were seeing this evil taking place and not understanding the, the great cosmic victory that was going to be the result of that. They had no idea. And so, too, we can get in despair when we look at things going on in the nation. But what this passage is teaching us and what we have to do is to remember that Christ is ruling and reigning and then at the end, he will put all things in subjection to himself. His enemies will be a footstool for his feet. Every enemy, even the enemies of today, as enemies rise up, they only last for so long and then they're brought down. Every enemy of Christ is being vanquished gradually. And the great enemy that he, that he speaks of here 
that will be abolished at his coming, after all other enemies are abolished at the end, he says the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Now this is important. Because death is personified here as one of the great enemies of God's people. And Paul says that when the resurrection of believers happens, that is intimately tied to the abolishing of death. Death is defeated when Christ returns and resurrects his people. That's the connection. That is intimately tied to the resurrection of his people. Why is that? Because it seems as if death being personified here, it seems that all of death's victims, as they were in his power, he took them in death. Again, this is just a personification of death. But he, he takes them in death. But at the resurrection of, of the believers, when Christ comes and he resurrects all the believers, death is then neutralized because he's lost all the victims that he had. He's rendered powerless. He's abolished. He's, his time has ended. That's another way of describing what Revelation does when we think of the coming of our Lord and, and no more tears and no more pain. Death is abolished at the coming of our Lord. When Christ is raised, when Christ has raised all his people at the end. One writer says the resurrection of Christians is not merely an arbitrary, isolated occurrence, but it is grounded in the cosmic victory of Christ over the power of death itself. And later here in this same chapter, when we wonder when death dies, again, it is tied to the resurrection of believers. In verse 54 of this chapter, God's word says, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death is done at the coming of our Lord. Death does not exist after the coming of our Lord. It dies when Christ returns. That's why when we have certain eschatologies that continue life after the coming of our Lord, we have to contend with this problem because Paul says death is abolished and yet there's the belief that people still die after the Lord comes back. How can that be? Death is abolished at the coming of our Lord and not only is death abolished at the coming of our Lord, but this is also when creation itself receives its redemption. In Romans chapter 8, Beginning of verse 18, the apostle says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation 
is renewed at the coming of our Lord. Death is abolished at the coming of our Lord. All the enemies of God are put under his feet at the coming of our Lord. Everything is completed. Christ's coming and the resurrection of the saints mark the end of world history. There is no more. So, before we head into the next section, just to, just to be reminding, because this is something that, that uh, indeed can disturb us at times when you consider the things of go- that are going on today. When you begin to fall into despair or get angry because of what you're seeing, it's right to get angry because of some of the evil and vile things that we see that are going on and we wonder, oh Lord, when is this going to end? We have to remember this. Even though we can't see it, we don't know the end. We don't know what Christ is doing, but what we can, what we can be assured of is that he is ruling and reigning. Everything is going according to plan because nothing in the kingdom of darkness ever has an effect on the kingdom of Christ. After all things are put under his feet, then we see God's unchallenged reign. And to me, this is so amazing, so beautiful. He says, For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. This is referring to God the Father who gives to the Son uh, all authority and rule because of his finished work. All things are in subjection to the Son, but this excludes the Father. The Father is not in subjection to the Son. The Son was carrying out the will of the Father. That's what's in view there. So all things are put in subjection to Christ. It is evident that he, meaning God the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection to Christ. When all things are subjected to him, meaning Christ, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Once Christ has put all things under his feet, and remember, all these things are tied to his resurrection. His resurrection has set in motion all of these things. And that's why we're looking, wanting to focus then too on the consequences of it and the benefits that we have received because of the resurrection of Christ. We are assured of a resurrection from the dead, a bodily resurrection. And when all things are subjected to him, all the enemies are vanquished, then the Son of God subjects the kingdom and himself to God the Father, that God may be all in all. You think of, when you think of the great love that exists within the Godhead, within the triune nature of God, you think of the perfect love and the perfect fellowship and the perfect communion that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet, in the outworking of salvation, you see the willing submission from one to the other. And when you think of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are equal in every aspect of their being. They are one in essence, one in substance. They are three in person. 
And yet, in the way that they bring about redemption, there is a willing submission of one to the other out of their great love for one another. So you have Christ who submits himself to the will of the Father, carry out the Father's will. You see the Holy Spirit who is sent by both the Father and the Son who glorifies Christ. Christ glorified the Father while he was on earth. The Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. That's one, that's one way in particular, as a footnote, that you can, uh, you can discern false movements or false movings of the Spirit. Because if the Spirit is placing any kind of, or if it's believed that the Spirit is placing any kind of emphasis on himself, then you can rest assured that this is not of God. Because the Spirit, Jesus says, glorifies him. The Spirit will always glorify Christ out of his love for the, for the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And if you think of that, that's not, a, it's not very hard to come up with some examples of that. Because when you think about the Scriptures, the Scriptures were inspired by the Holy Spirit. He, he moved upon those that wrote. And what did they write about? They were writing about the coming of Christ. They were writing about all that Christ did. The scriptures glorify Christ. When you think of the earthly ministry of Christ, the Holy Spirit rejoicing with Christ and Christ performing miracles through the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit was bringing attention to Christ even then. And then when you think of the Holy Spirit regenerating the hearts of God's people, what do we do? call upon Christ in faith and we praise the name of Christ the Holy Spirit delights in glorifying our Lord Jesus and then when it gets to the end out of the great love that the, that the Son has for the Father our Lord Jesus turns everything over to the Father that the Father receives the ultimate glory out of his great love for the Father he hands the kingdom over to him that he would receive glory and that he would be over all things. His reign would go unchallenged because Christ has already vanquished all the enemies. And once the bride is complete and the kingdom has had its full manifestation, the Son of God hands the kingdom over to the Father. And Christ delights in glorifying his Father. And this is looking forward to what Christ has accomplished, what he is accomplishing in this present day, what will be accomplished in the days to come at God's appointed time, and it's all tied to his resurrection. At this time of year, we, we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, but we also need to see it on a grander scale as well. It's not an isolated event. His resurrection ensures ours, each in his own order. And you can look at that and say, well, Christ was the first fruits. The great harvest is coming at the end. But even in that, there's an order to it. Uh, when you look at the, the passage that was also read before one of the songs in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, we read this, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's another footnote. 
this particular event is not a secret event. This is a very public event. This is not some secret thing that happens and nobody knows what happens. He says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is a very public event. Christ coming with all his majesty and glory at the resurrection of his people, and he brings up his people and glorifies himself in them. The first who rise are those, or he says the dead in Christ will rise first, meaning those who are now in the intermediate state. When you die now, your body goes to the dust of the earth and your spirit goes home to be with the Lord. You are in a state of perfection, and as Paul says in Philippians 1, it's far better to be there than it is here. But your redemption isn't done yet because you're not glorified in him. That takes place at the appointed time, which is in view, uh, which is in view in this passage. So that at the coming of Christ, those who have went on, who are in the intermediate state, ruling and reigning with Christ. When he comes back, they will be glorified in a physical body first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. And we who are alive and remain, as the apostle says back in 1 Corinthians 15, that in the moment in the twinkling of an eye will be changed after the dead in Christ have risen first. And we can be hopeful of that very event because Christ was raised from the dead. And we can be hopeful even in the time of now seeing so many vile things and wicked, wicked people and all of that, we can be hopeful that Christ is ruling and reigning because in his resurrection he has conquered all the cosmic powers of evil. He's already conquered Satan. Satan is a defeated foe, and it's at God's appointed time in which he will bring all things to its consummation. So we have hope not only of a future resurrection, we have hope of a time in which Christ will vanquish his enemies and set all things right. And we have a hope that at God's appointed time when all this occurs, that we will get to spend eternity on a renewed earth in which righteousness dwells with no more tears and no more pain, no more suffering, but only joy in the Lord with those who have went on before us. And we are assured of that because Christ was raised from the dead. And he is seated on his cosmic throne. And those are the things also that we need to concentrate on at this time of year when we are looking at the resurrection of our Lord. So as we close, those are some of the questions. Um, what kind of hope do you have in this life right now? Is your hope set in Christ? Christ who is the reigning king, who is all-powerful and has all authority. Have you trusted in Christ alone for your salvation? And what is saving faith? That's the thing. We, we talk about talking about salvation is through faith alone kind of faith are we talking about we're not just talking about a faith that has a knowledge 
of what Christ had done and thinks that it's true, would agree that it's true, assent to the facts, that's not saving faith. Saving faith is having a knowledge of what Christ has done, believing that it's true, and then trusting in those very truths for your salvation. What does that mean? That means looking at the gospel and all that Christ did and believing that it was done for me. And that's saving faith. And through that faith, believing in what he did in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, his righteousness can be imputed to you through faith, that your sins will be paid for, and that the righteousness of Christ will be credited to your account so that the Father looks at you, he doesn't see a sinful person or a sinful rebel. Now he sees the righteousness of his son, perfect righteousness. And that's what brings us into favor with God. Have you trusted in Christ with saving faith? And that's the question. And I pray that if you have not, that the Lord will do a mighty work within your heart today and allow you that saving revelation knowledge of who he is. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you so much for this portion of your word. Thank you for the great hope that we have of not only the great benefits that are applied to us and the fullness of our redemption of being glorified in Christ, but thank you that even on a grander scale, we can have hope in this life regardless of what goes on in our nation or in the world because we recognize that our king is ruling and reigning and that his kingdom is above all. When times come, Father, that we get irritated or in times of despair, let us remember that it is Isaiah saw Christ high and lifted up, seated on his throne. Let us remember and reflect upon that passage knowing that our sovereign is at work and intimately involved in everything that goes on to bring about his will in the host of, of heaven and in, and in the realm of men. Thank you that one day we will be delivered from this body of death. We will be renewed, no longer to contend with ourselves, to contend with sin, but to experience the fullness of all that Christ had, had brought about in his finished work. No more sin. Thank you so much for the great hope that we have. And help us, Father, in the days to come to reflect upon these truths and that the joy of the Lord, Father, will be retained in our hearts. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's children said.